Okay, let's see what's news today. Uh, the morning paper blues, huh? Oh, bad, bad, worse. Wait. Uh-oh. No, good news. The General Assembly in Richmond is working on a law to help Dominion Energy customers. If it passes, it's going to lower the cost of electricity. Uh, let me see. Right here. Wow, you're right. It saves Dominion Energy customers at least $350 million. Is it law? Mm, not yet, but I sure hope it passes. Great. Now pass me the comics. Legislation being considered by the Virginia General Assembly strengthens regulatory oversight and saves customers at least $350 million. That means a savings of about 6 to $7 a month for the average residential user, according to the State Corporation Commission, the agency that regulates utilities in Virginia. It's common sense rate relief that helps us continue doing what we do best, meeting the needs of our customers. To take action, visit dominionenergy.com forward slash rate relief. Paid for by Dominion Energy. From the era that brought you names like Chamberlain, Russell, and West. To Chamberlain, he's got it! Jerry West made it from the other side of the mid-court strike! To the glory days of Magic and Kareem. And Magic Johnson is out there celebrating! Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is on the brink of an NBA all-time record. From a time where last-second shots were expected. Here comes Kobe. From way outside. Got it! Oh, man! Gets it to LeBron. For three for the win! Yes! And rings were handed out like candy. Here's Troy. Yes! It is all over. The Chicago Bulls have won. It's Duncan Dynasty with your host, Garrett Bougay, and it starts right now. Welcome to another episode of Duncan Dynasty. I'm your host, Garrett Bougay, and with me this week, I've got a very special guest. He's a, a, a great friend of mine. He's a regular on the program. He's a fellow Sports Business Classroom alum, Evan Dial. Evan, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's always fun. I love just shooting the shit and talking hoops with you. Now, I, I, uh, I will say to, to anyone listening that when Evan and I were sort of discussing the topic that we were going to talk about for this episode, we we kind of wanted to do the the first sort of NBA Finals preview and get that out a, a, ahead of everybody else. But given we're recording this on on Tuesday afternoon, given last night that the Clippers uh, were were not willing to to have their season end and kept that series alive, we felt it would be kind of foolish to <laughs> try and predict what the actual NBA Finals matchup was going to be. So instead, we're going to be breaking down the Conference Finals series and and uh, more in, in detail this uh, this Phoenix-LA series because I found it so fascinating. But Evan, I guess with, uh, with, the, with the Clippers win last night, a 116-102 victory on the road in Phoenix to make it uh, a 3-2 a series, what, uh, what were some of the first things that uh, – that uh, piqued your interest when you watched that game? One, that we should stop counting the Clippers out. (laughs) This team's clearly really tough and really resilient, and Ty Lue knows to push the right buttons. I mean, down 2-0 to Dallas, 3-2 to Dallas, 2-0 to Utah, 3-1. I mean, every time the back's really against the wall, they've responded. Two, we should be nicer to Paul George because he's a beast. <laughs> yeah. What a game. Absolutely. Just all-time performance. And I know he's not perfect, and he has his moments here and there in the playoffs, the two free throws in game two. But 
man, he was awesome. This was probably his best game of the postseason. That or was it game five in Utah when Kawhi first went out. He was awesome. Just an incredible individual performance. And then three, Zubach was out. So another reason people were counting out the Clippers. The Clippers go zone A. And then B, they unleashed DeMarcus Cousins against Dario Saric. And he was just roasted him. And I hadn't seen that from Cousins in like, what, four and five years? <laughs> yeah, um, those are all great points, all things I had in my notes. And yeah, I've got some questions to ask you about all three of those. Well, first off, I'll, I'll, yeah. just, I'll just mention Paul George's stat line from, from game five. 41 yeah. points on 15 of 20 from the Ooh. field. Three of six from downtown, eight of eight from the free throw line. 13 rebounds, six assists. He did have six turnovers, which he, he seemingly has a bunch of turnovers just about every game, but also three steals in 41 minutes. He was also a plus 14 in his uh, minutes on the court. So, yeah, as you said, absolutely sensational. One of the, one of the, the highlight marks of his career. But, uh, yeah, he was just cooking. You know, when he gets that jump shot going, and, and you could say maybe part of the reason he – he was able to get going so well from, from the outside was that he was able to consistently get to the line. He got to the rim a few times. And part of that could be down to the Clippers and uh, them spreading the floor and playing more small ball. That too. Sometimes with him, it's always been a thing. You want him to attack more, attack the rim. He's reluctant. He falls in love with his jumper, but when he gets that going and his shot, I mean, it's like done. (laughs) Yeah. When when he has both, like he's he's gonna get thirty. It's just he's that smooth and skilled of a score. And it just shows how versatile the Clippers lineups are. Even though Zubot, I mean, think about it, how many different players have stepped up with it. I mean, Reggie Jackson's huge this playoffs. He's averaging like twenty a game. That just shows when a player gets a shot who could already attack how good they can become. One of the best minimum signings like ever. <laughs> Yeah, Reggie Jackson's playoff numbers, 18.1 points per game, 59% from two-point range, 42% from three, 65% at the rim, 54% from mid-range, and nearly 87% from the line. He's been, he's been sensational. But uh, going back to one of your earlier points about uh, you know Ty Lue and his adjustments he's made throughout uh, his playoff career, apparently now he's... 10 and two as a playoff coach in elimination games, which is incredible. Yeah. But uh, you know, you also got to wonder, was he kind of overthinking it early in the series? You know, despite I thought Zubach looked good in the, the last two or three games that he played, he played well for them. But what we saw at the end of both of the Clippers first two rounds them going small really is what uh, created the, the best version of this basketball team. And we saw it again last night where without Zubach blocking the paint and, and clogging things up, they, uh, they were able to get to the basket more. They were able to, to space it and have five shooters, and they got their three-point shots to fall more than they had in the previous couple of games. And then defensively, it seems like almost – it's counterintuitive that you you would think that a guy like DeAndre Ayton would go off more against a small ball lineup with crazy mismatches, but he actually is putting up much better numbers against the likes of Zubach and against a drop coverage 
than than he did with the the Clippers small ball. They did a great job of sort of gang rebounding and keeping him off the glass. That was huge. I mean, Paul George was a big part of that. He had, what, 13 or 14 boards. Yeah. But yeah, Zubac in game four, I think, played the most minutes he's, like, ever had. And yeah, eight and what, like 20 and 20 or whatever it was, just a monster game. But you're right. The best version of the Clippers is the small ball. I do get why Ty Lue was a little concerned to play it as much with Aiden and Kawhi out. But now... Or you mean you mean Ibaka and Kawhi? Well, Ibaka... Well, about Aiden could do more damage to them than like even Rudy Gobert could. Like offense. Oh, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. 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 Then Kawhi went out. But then a few things have happened in the playoffs. One, Pat Beverly's healthy again. And he's playing really good defense. And he hits like just enough shots to make him like a kind of useful offensive player. Because <laughs> Layden, like he was a disaster this season when he played. Like he lost his shot completely. And it, it just became four on five. But now Reggie Jackson's increased the offense load. So they're getting enough offense. They're gang rebounding. They can switch everything. It's There's very few teams that can really check all those boxes. And they can, even without Kawhi, which is really impressive. Yeah, the uh, the one thing that I think is a no-no for, for traditional centers trying to get on the offensive glass against a small ball lineup, especially uh, against a team like the Clippers where they're really and, – and similar with like those uh, – that last version of the small ball Rockets we got – the, the year yeah. prior, you saw it a lot in that series against Oklahoma City where Steven Adams kept trying to just tip the ball to himself. But when you've got five guys surrounding you, the, as soon as you tip it and don't just grab it, then they're, they're going to guys are going to get into your body, push you out of the way. And other guys yeah. are going to you've got eight hands trying to tap the ball against your two. So that's what I saw a lot of last night where Aiden has just got to focus on. He's got to grab it out of the air instead of trying to tip it to himself. No, just um, get it and get fouled. <laughs> yeah, uh, but but yeah, the whole the whole Lou thing is interesting because yeah, clearly he has a better sense of that locker room and what works and what doesn't. And and yes, he's done a terrific job of making adjustments mid series and getting his team to play better as the series goes along. But yeah, you do wonder at times. It's like okay, well, you saw what worked in the previous series, and now you're going to start kind of from square one and not take any of the lessons you learned seemingly and get down to 0-2 in all of these series, uh, eventually you'd think that would catch up to him. But, yeah, there there is the other thing to consider is, yeah, Kawhi Leonard was out. You had Marcus Morris. Uh, he was right. dealing with a knee issue early in the series. Maybe there's, there's an element with Nick Batum as well where he's in his early 30s. Maybe Lou is thinking, well, if we have a decisive game, we want to ramp up his minutes, but maybe early on we should – give him a little bit more rest. So he might be playing a little bit more of the long game than the rest of us are. I think he, especially with Batum, because they rode Batum so hard in the Dallas series. Yeah. He's playing like 40, 45 minutes a game. And since then, he's kind of, I mean, at least offense, he's still playing good defense, but offensively he's not giving them anything. Well, and, and early in this series, he was only playing, he was right. playing about 16 minutes a night, but then, Last night in an elimination game, he got Batum back up to 30 minutes. 
Exactly. That's a good point. So he might have just been gassed or maybe dealing with something minor. I don't know. But, man, they just – they keep – I mean, they're so deep. It's actually pretty incredible that they can survive these injuries and still have viable options to play. Now that Morris is back, I think, like, they have – they could win this series. It would not shock me. Yeah, the, the final comment you brought up when, when we initially started talking about this series was that they did well in the Cousins minutes in this game, which had not been in the, the case previously. That's um, what interests me most, honestly, how much he wants to go to that. Because, I mean, I, the Suns will obviously target him on the other end every single time and make him move. But, man, <laughs> he was cooking, Sarich. Just cooking. Yeah, Um it, it, pretty much every game with, when Cousins is on the floor, it's you know he he typically is a pretty good offensive option for them. There, there are a few teams oh, that have the size, especially when he's playing as a backup center. There's few backup yeah. centers that can really deal with his combination of size, strength, and skill. But uh, yeah, as you mentioned, teams have been able to just score at will against Cousins. He is an atrocious defensive player, yeah. uh, but uh, Lou throwing out the wrinkle in this game in, in the last game in game five, a two, one, two zone when cousins is on the floor to try mm-hmm. to just, you know, maybe not be great defensively, but try to just not be a complete fire fire. Exactly. He was able to, on the offensive end, seven of 12 from the field, 15 points also had three assists, you know, towards the end there, the, the Suns were just sending straight doubles, which he was able to find a couple. He's always of been a really good passer. Yeah, he he is a, he is an excellent passer. So that that'll be interesting moving forward as well. As you know, can can Lou get away with those minutes? And uh, you know, for for a lot of this postseason, it has been something that's killed them. But in Game Five, it actually helped. Well, then you want to go the other side. Will Monty Williams try to match Aiden with Cousins more? Yeah. So Sarich doesn't have to deal with that. And for him, defense, if I'm not sure, the zone is like the thing that can throw off a team for a game, but you don't know how it'll do for two games. Like the Suns, the first 10 minutes or so of that game were just awful offensively. Yeah. Like the zone totally threw them. They weren't running any of their stuff. They were taking terrible shots. I'm sure they'll be better prepared for it for game six, so... I'm not sure how much staying power it is, but if they can play that, particularly with Cousins, and not be a disaster on that end, that's a huge Clippers win right there. Huge. Yeah, and, you know, the the whole Aiton storyline is fascinating. He's obviously he's obviously been terrific for, for most of this series, but in Game 5, just 10 points, 11 rebounds, only three offensive rebounds, which, you know, that's that's a decent number, but when – you're going up against a six-seven guy for the entirety of the game. Not not fantastic production there. One assist, one steal, one block, and two turnovers. Also, Aiden a minus twenty-two in his thirty-seven minutes. So he's obviously got to be better. The Suns have got to do a better job of getting him involved and, and finding ways to to unleash him as a scorer. And you, you mentioned one possibility that Williams could match his minutes with Cousins and get him against a traditional center, and which can open up the lobs and, and all of that sort of thing. 
but also, you know, uh, something we saw in the first couple of games with, with, with Cameron Payne and when he was playing really well was Payne with his elite quickness and speed, just getting those blow buys, which draws the help. And then he's able to get those little dump offs to eight and under the rim. They got hardly any of that in game five. That's that's what uh, concerns me a bit for the Suns. Payne has not looked right since that injury. He just yeah. had, he's and he was so good the first two games. By the way, I never thought Cameron Payne would become that good of a player. So shout out to him. Shout out to him. Yeah, to be a crucial rotation piece in the conference finals. I thought he was a borderline NBA player for so long, but shout out. But now, I mean, they like they need him. Yeah. He, he gives them just a little juice that, like, kind of no one else has. I mean, Chris Paul's methodical. Devin Booker, you know, runs off a lot of screen shooter. I mean, he'll drive some, too, of course. But no one else just has that, like, bursting quickness. And can he dump off to attack the rim more? So his health, I think, is a pretty sneaky thing for the Suns. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me as well that he – he got injured, what was a game three, and then he, he yeah. wasn't able to come back in that game. But they brought him back in game four. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he he played, uh, you know, played OK in that game four. And, and the Suns got a big win there. But you also wonder as well, you know, like Ty Lue playing the long game, you wonder, should they have maybe rested him a game and given him a little bit extra time to get that ankle right? Um, we'll, we'll see how he looks in the last game or potentially two of this series but you're right he's 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 big for for this team and especially considering the production and the play that they've gotten from their all-star their all-nba level backcourt that they have not been great the likes of of chris paul and devin booker paul so far in his three games in this series shooting just 19 of 60 from the field for 31.7 percent uh he's just two of 16 from downtown he has 27 assists and nine turnovers in the three games, which for, for most people, that's pretty good. But for Chris Paul, a three to one assist to turnover ratio is not uh, actually that great. Uh, and then uh, Devin Booker shooting just 38.2% from the field. His assist to turnover ratio is actually pretty atrocious. 24 assists and 22 turnovers in the five games. And also one thing that I thought went uh, – uh, you know, that the, not a lot of people were talking about after that game five was Booker just getting cooked defensively over and over by the likes of Marcus Morris. Morris went six for seven in that first quarter prior to Paul George getting hot later in the game. That was big to keep the Clippers in it and, and give the Clippers a lead in the early going. And it was primarily going at Devin Booker. Paul George got going at times against Booker as well. So uh, Booker, you know, for, for most of the series has, has struggled offensively and, and the Clippers have done a much better job of attacking him on the defensive end as of late. Yeah, it was interesting. I thought Chris Paul did have his best game offensively last night in the series because three and four, he was just really, really brutal. Not that he was amazing yesterday, but I thought it was the most Chris Paulish. Devin Booker had his best game since game one offensively, too. His, I mean, he was turning the ball over, but his shot was falling. But this was by far, I think, the worst defensive game for the Suns in the playoffs, which was weird because it's coming off maybe their best in game four. I mean, if you hold it, I know they only had 84, but if you hold a team to 82 points in today's NBA, that's that's very impressive. 
Yeah. I mean, that was an old school 90s game. But you're right. In game five, Booker was getting cooked. I mean, every their bench unit was getting really cooked. So I'm confident, though, that I trust the Suns' defense coming back more in game six. I do. I'm more worried about their offense, actually. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, speaking to the Suns' defensive performance, I thought as a team, they, they looked good. Their, their rotations were sound. They, they did a lot of the, the stuff that you hope that you would coach up for a team. I thought they, they executed stuff well. It was just getting beat one-on-one. Paul George yeah. just, you know, for a lot of the game was just going one-on-one and beating guys. Uh, Marcus Morris was just going one-on-one and beating guys. Reggie Jackson hit some, some pretty ridiculous shots off of spot-ups and in isolation. And, and, of course, we already mentioned DeMarcus Cousins just roasting Saric on the block. Yes. So a lot of it, you, you wonder, I mean, obviously they can they could maybe say, well, if we're, if we're getting beat, we need to send doubles or send more help or whatever. But also this Clippers team is the greatest three-point shooting team of all time. So sending help, sending doubles isn't some sort of panacea. It's crazy. I mean – Mark Morris in particular is such a just a bell with the Clippers. It's almost like if he plays well offensively, they win. Like if his shots falling, if he could take advantage of mismatches in the post, it's just so huge because he is so just up. Like it's either like twenty points or like four, <laughs> just so all over the place. So if they get that from him, Reggie Jackson, I would say, is officially consistent. <laughs> yeah. I, I would say I trust Reggie Jackson now, which is pretty crazy from where he was early in his career. So then it's just it's getting the third scorer for the Clippers, whether that's Morris, Cousins. I don't know who really else would be now besides like a random Luke Kennard hot game from three. Or a Terrence Mann, 39 oh, points. Terrence, Utah. That was insane. Oh, my God. <laughs> That had to be the most crazy out of nowhere playoff, just a, just performance I maybe have ever seen. Yeah, the um, the interesting thing comparing you know this series to the the Clippers Jazz series was that you know people were were giving Rudy Gobert a hard time towards the end with the Jazz just giving up a ton of points and really not having any answers defensively, but. A lot of it was just giving up dribble penetration, blow buys, and forcing immediate help uh, from Gobert. And when they've got spacing, uh, you know, there, there aren't good options. You either help and prevent a layup, but give up an open three, or you don't help and give up a layup. Uh, you know, so I think a, a big reason why I and others were more confident in the Suns' chances was that they just had better individual defenders than mm-hmm. that Jazz team, especially on the perimeter. But, uh, you know, that didn't show up that well in, in the last game. I think a lot of times we I even saw Jay Crowder get blown by on a couple of occasions. And uh, it, it looked like Monty Williams also was just trying to he, – he started playing Craig, I think, in big minutes in the fourth just because he wanted a guy that wasn't going to get blown by off the dribble. Uh, but that is, that is a legitimate concern. And, frankly, it's – it's concerning for a Suns team up three, two, that you say you're worried about their offense and, and I am as well, but I'm, I'm a little concerned about both sides of the floor, especially if the yeah. Clippers continue to play this, you know, five out sort of style. And, you know, if Morris is, is healthy and good again to, to give Ty Lue 30, 35 minutes and 
Batum can can play 30 to 35. They can play those small ball lineups a lot more than they showed in the at the beginning of the series. I think part of the Suns was just like, holy shit. If we win this game, we're going to the finals. <laughs> yeah. I think they had that's like we're at home, like this is fucking nuts. Like yeah. we just had 10 years of being the worst franchise in basketball, basically. Yeah. I mean, it's like that moment is a lot. And I think they just kind of all just not like choke, but it just it got a little too. So I do trust that they'll settle down a bit in game six and be like, okay, we're a really good team. Let's trust ourselves. So so I think the effort and just the poise will be better even on the road. But it's a toss-up who's going to win. I think these teams are pretty fairly even right now, don't you? I do. And, you know, you you look at, you look at how game two went and even game four. Yeah. Game two was nuts. <laughs> it could very easily be the Clippers up 3-2 uh, going, going, going home right now. So, yeah, it, uh, it, it very much feels like each game is a toss-up. And, of course, you know, uh, given that the Phoenix Suns have a game edge, you'd, you'd give them a slight advantage to probably get through to the finals. But – yeah, I uh, I don't really know what I would predict at this point. the The other issue for the Suns offensively is that you know outside of Cameron Johnson, who's played extremely well, they've gotten they've gotten no three point production from just about anybody. You know, I, I mentioned Chris Paul's yeah. two of sixteen from three. Devin Booker is shooting like thirty two percent from downtown. Mikael Bridges is 7 of 21, campaign 5 of 17, and uh, Jay Crowder 7 of 26. I was going to mention that. Their threes have been brutal this series. And, man, they could use a Jay Crowder hitting four or five three games. Just someone of the Bridges, Sarich, Crowder group, if one of those guys could have a four or five three game, oh, it would open it up so bad. I mean, they need that badly. because. It was just, yeah, it was just Cam Johnson who's really been hitting threes for them. Yeah. And, you know, you, you talk about the sort of the, the three-headed monster they have offensively in Paul Booker and Aiden. I mean, Mikael Bridges was pretty much like the third or fourth scorer on this team all season. He averaged 13 and a half points per game during the regular season. He averaged 16 a game in that uh, four-game sweep of the Nuggets. But in this series, averaging just 8.6 points, and especially with the way the Clippers, you know, they're putting their best defenders in in Beverly and Mann and Paul George. They're putting those guys on Paul and Booker. Bridges often has, you know, one of the weaker defensive players of the Clippers on him, whether that's Kennard or Reggie Jackson. And he's been just, you know, real passive at times, catching the ball and just seemingly hot potatoing it back to whatever uh, – whoever of uh, Paul or Booker is closest to him, but I think he's got to be a little bit more aggressive and they need like a, a game where Bridges gives them 15 or 20. No, they're, they're dying for it. I mean, yeah, they're, I mean, they won game four just cause their defense, but man, that offense was, it was a slog. Yeah. And it really has for big parts of this series. So yeah, Bridges, I mean, just, hit a couple threes, attack some closeouts more. I know they play super slow all the time because Chris Paul, but 
I think they should actually try running a bit more just to get a few easy things. It's been tough though. And they'll need they'll need some shots to fall from one of the I don't know, the supporting cast. Because right now Chris Hall, Booker, they're they're just not enough to carry it just by themselves, especially against really good individual defenders, which the Clippers have. It's it's actually kind of ridiculous how many ridiculously good defenders the Clippers have without Kawhi. Right. <laughs> and, and I think they're without Kawhi, they're you know, it's funny and it's funny that Kawhi doesn't really have a great matchup in this particular series against the Suns. You know, that the Suns don't have this like elite wing score. They're mostly it's it's a guard uh, oriented right. offensive attack. So even without Kawhi, I feel like, yeah, the, the Clippers with with Beverly and man and even Paul George just showing some extra size. They've got three guys to throw at them. And, and that's been that's been tough. But, yeah, they, um, you know, Chris Paul obviously had that terrific series against Denver and then missed the first couple of games because of COVID. And, uh, you know, after shooting so well against the Nuggets, you know, you, you would expect him to come back to earth a little bit. But, you know, this is this is such a huge moment for Chris Paul's career, his legacy. Oh, <laughs> and if there's ever a time for Chris Paul, and, and he is one of the, you know, the biggest competitors we've seen in the NBA in the history of the league. If there was ever a time for him to just put a team on his shoulders, it would be here in uh, this upcoming game six. It's, it's probably his last chance. And I was thinking that watching the game last night, I was like, not just the Suns, Chris Paul's been about to finally make a finals. And you just go back to all the rough I mean, the 3-1 collapse to Houston when he was with the Clippers. That rough game 5 in OKC with the Clippers. When he was up 3-2 with Houston, it wasn't his fault. He got hurt. It just, but it still sucks. Yeah. But now he finally has a chance for this. He gets fucking COVID before the start of the series. So it does seem it's just always something, but it's still also, it's right in front of him and how it would be amazing if he won game six against the Clippers in LA and got to go to his finals. I would be very happy. I've always been a humongous Chris Paul fan and he just, he deserves to be in the finals once. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But as am I, I have always loved Chris Paul and yeah, I would, uh, after watching him against Denver, I would love to see another vintage Chris Paul playoff performance here in the conference finals to, to see them, go up but uh yeah was there anything else about this particular series before uh, that you wanted to talk about before we move on to atlanta milwaukee um well games it's just interesting if it does go to a game seven the pros for phoenix obviously is their home and game seven histories have shown it very you know, it goes to the home team most of the time, except mm-hmm. for the Sixers this year, or I guess the Nets too. <laughs> but I just wonder if this Suns group, who has veteran players, but it's a new team of them together, I would trust the Clippers more in a Game 7, weirdly. Well, and especially given that they would have all the momentum going. They would have all the momentum. Phoenix would be twite, tight. So my advice to Phoenix, get it done in game six. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, and that, that was kind of my feelings going into the, the 2016 NBA Finals Game 7 between the Warriors yeah. and the Cavs. It was like, you know, if Good you had point. just told – if you wouldn't have given me any details and you just said, okay, it's the 2016 Warriors against the 2016 Cavs, it's in Golden State, who would you pick? I'd pick the Warriors. But given the context of that series and how the tides had turned, I, well, I felt like the Cavs had like a, you know, a 50-50 shot in that Game 7. So um, – especially yeah. given you've got the same coach here in, in LA with Ty Lu. If uh, yeah, if the Clippers take game six at home, I might even slightly favor them. In a I game. think I would too. Yeah. So let's, let's get to uh, Atlanta, Milwaukee. And, and again, we're, we're recording this on a, a Tuesday afternoon. So there'll, there'll be another game. Game four will have happened by the time you're, you're all hearing this, but uh as we speak, it's Milwaukee up two games to one with uh, game four in Atlanta. Atlanta took game one, 116-113, and then game two was that absolute demolition by the Bucks, yeah. 125-91. to And then game three was a, a pretty competitive affair. The Hawks got out to a good start, but Milwaukee chipped away at it and ended up getting a terrific performance from Chris Middleton. Uh, to uh, to take a two games to one series lead, I gotta say, Chris Middleton. I was I get some people are annoyed with him. He can be very streaky, but when that dude is hot, he is as good as anyone in the NBA. Oh my god! Yeah, some of those shots he was hitting, I was just like, get out of here. <laughs> he was just roasting everyone on Atlanta. He's a hell of a player. I love Chris Middleton. Yeah, you you mentioned how Reggie Jackson is probably has been like the most consistent performer in these playoffs. Middleton has been probably the most inconsistent performer, given that he has these incredible games. Of course, the the game three in this series, also the game six in the series against the Nets, he was phenomenal. Yeah, but then he has these stinkers like in game one against Atlanta, where he goes six of twenty three and just looks like he's never played the game of basketball before. It's weird, and a lot of it, I think, is he does, he just, I would like to see him attack more and get easier ways. I think they did start finding a way to get him some easier looks in the second half of that game three. Just, you know, mid-post, ISO, stuff like that. So it's good. Going forward, I think the Bucks win this in five, especially now that Trey's hurt. I actually did think it would be a more competitive series, but the Hawks are just running out of bodies now. Like Bogdanovich is like playing on one leg, has not been good all series. Now Trey, they're obviously minus Hunter. It's just like it's getting to the point where they're just running out of guys you can trust. I mean, for a while in that game, they were going to Gallo because that's all they had. Right. <laughs> and especially if Herder's cold or they're not getting much from Collins, they just don't have enough offense. The Bucs have been inconsistent this postseason, but their defense has been mostly consistent. And Giannis, also, we should be nicer to him. I know he has his flaws, but he, the dude is averaging like 35 and 13 in the playoffs and is the most physically dominant player since Shaq. I mean, like, at some point, we just have to have the conference. Like, what more do we expect from him? Right. And I think yeah. we're getting the best version of him. 
Yeah, the the only the only complaints I have with Giannis is his continued uh, taking of three point shots. Uh, yeah, you know, given how dominant he is around the basket, like imagine imagine Shaq after getting a three straight post up dunks, like just stepping out and taking an eighteen footer. That's what it feels like at times. I know. Um, but uh, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. He has been terrific, and and frankly, the struggles of the Bucks offense, I think, have have much less to do with Giannis as they do, they have to do with the likes of Holiday and Middleton, who have just been so inconsistent, so up and down. 100%. There is, to me, there there is yet to be, and, and maybe I'm not thinking of one, but there's yet to be a game in these playoffs where all three of them have played well in the same game. I was thinking the same thing. Because, yeah, game one, Holiday was actually great, but Middleton wasn't. Holiday was brutal most of the net series, even though he did hit some big shots in the fourth in game seven. Giannis has been the one consistent one. Yeah. That's why, like, game three was huge that they got a Bobby Portis game. Like, that just gave them so much life. They needed just one extra bench guy, and he gave 15 energy, all that. I mean, because they really, I mean, in the net series, they went to six players. Now it's like seven and a half. Like, you may get five to eight Forbes minutes. But it's really just Portis and Connaughton. A sneaky big loss, though, was Dante DiVincenzo, I think, for them. He just, he's just a, he's just a good glue guy, an extra shooter. He can cut. Just give him a little more breathing room on offense, because it is tough at times to watch them on offense. But now, I think they have some good matchups in this series with Trey. I think. I would be honestly, I'd be surprised if Atlanta won another game. Yeah, I I, I didn't do a, a podcast preview of the conference finals, but I, I picked Bucks in five, and uh, I was I was not feeling great about that after game one. But oh, uh, all time game from Trey, wow, absolutely, and yeah, that that stinker from Middleton, but right the um right the the bucks just seem to have too many advantages in this series you know the they had guys who i they had guys that i thought could give trey a hard time with with a guy like drew holiday but he struggled defending trey and and getting over ball screens at times and trey is so good at uh making guy think he's going to use the screen and then crosses over he had that one where then he went into a shimmy before he before he took the shot he's so freaking quick it's unreal yeah and man, what I mean, just what a playoffs for him. Like, I love the Hawks story, a season. I would buy Hawks stock going forward. They've got a really good core, I think. A lot of good young players. But now they're just they're running out of bodies and Yeah, and that, that was the that was the big thing for me looking at this series, you know, especially with Bogdanovich not yeah. looking healthy at the, even at the end of the Philadelphia series, which you know, that's another just talk about the disaster for the Sixers that they were they were losing games five and seven with Bogdanovich not healthy, not looking very good, not being very productive. But with with, with Bogdanovich on one leg, you know, the the I thought the Bucks could just throw Drew Holiday on on Trey Young. And I thought they could get away with just having Bryn Forbes in the starting lineup and maybe move away from the PJ Tucker starting. I thought they, I thought they actually were going to do that as well. Yeah, and and just get some extra shooting, 
And then also on the other end, I thought, well, the Hawks' weakness defensively is in the guard line with Trey Young, with Herder, Bogdanovich. These guys aren't great defenders. They're not even good defenders. So, you know, guys like Holiday and Middleton, who, yeah, they're not like the ideal number one ball handler on a championship team, but they're good. And I I thought they would they would just have great series uh, against this this particular matchup. And then I thought the Hunter absence was also pretty big just as a guy that another guy they could throw on Giannis and also a guy that gives them a big wing defender that isn't a liability offensively like a, a Solomon Hill. That's there's a little too much Solomon Hill going on right now, <laughs> but honestly, like they don't have a lot of choices. So I kind of get it. I love Hunter too. That's a big interest. But now I think Middleton has got comfortable in this series. I mean, Herder roasted him in the fourth Bogdanovich too quick for Collins. I mean, the Hawks really, they just don't have a move there. Like, I don't know. And Giannis has figured out the Compella matchup. I even thought a Kongu did a little better job on him. That guy's going to be good, by the way. He's like not there yet, but I like him. Yeah, I uh, I feel pretty good about having a Kongu number two on my board in the draft. Now, embarrassingly, he was ahead of Lamelo Ball at three, but uh, I'm still happy that I was very high on a Kongu. Don't beat yourself up about Lamelo. A lot of people had no idea, but that dude is the greatest thing to happen to Charlotte Hornets organization, and I don't even think that's an exaggeration. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, I I loved how Akangwu. I've loved how he's looked even even near the end of the the net series. I thought he started to show some signs in his limited minutes, and and then yeah, in this Hawks series, he's done some really nice things. Had a nice uh, tie up of of Giannis on a drive where he just ripped the ball from him. Um, the uh, a, a couple of interesting things I had in my notes about this series. You know, I obviously understood the concern of Trey Young being able to attack the conventional pick and roll defense of the Bucs. He's one of the best in the league at that. He's a great passer. He's got the great floater. He can hit the threes. But uh, to the extent that he killed their drop defense in game one was still a bit surprising. And the the Bucs really gave him everything. They gave him the, you know, they had Lopez in the really deep drop. So it gave Young just the ability to take what felt like wide open floaters from 10 to 15 feet. And then they also gave him some some threes where they didn't get over the screens. They gave him, I mean, I think he had double digit assists in that game one as well. Uh, that's where it really kills you, where the guys like your, your Luka Doncic's, your LeBron James and his prime, those guys win when they're scoring 35 and giving you 15 assists or scoring 45 and 10 assists where they just are completely dominant is where they get you. Well, that was the interesting game three adjustment. The Bucks they played trade. They wanted him to be a scorer instead of facilitator more. Yeah. And I think they kind of lived with the fact that he'll hit a few D threes here and there and just make him a shooter rather than him getting the lane and, the whole conundrum of floater or lob to Capella. I think they played off him a little bit more. And Lopez, I mean, these whole playoffs, right, has been a weird thing with Budenholzer. He takes, I mean, talk, I mean, if you're claiming about Ty Lu taking too long to make adjustments, <laughs> I mean, another level for Budenholzer. Yeah. 
he gets there sometimes to his credit. It's better than not getting there. But it just, man, it, 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 it takes some time. And I get it. I mean, there's the Bucks are so, this is what we do. <laughs> like, we are not going to, to change it that much. We win a lot of games doing this. And it just, I don't know, it fascinates me with this. The Bucks are like my most interesting team. It just sometimes to get out of their own way is like tough for them. It's like Lopez is going to play a drop because that's what we do. <laughs> yeah. But now they do seem little by little changing their ways. Like I'm loving their stuff to do an offensive more using Giannis as a screener, left block ISO. I like all that stuff. Two-man game with Middleton. That's good. And if Lopez is in there, like, wreck some shit down low. <laughs> yeah. And he did. He had some nice moments in Game 3. Way better than Game 1, which was just a defensive disaster for them. Yeah, the uh, the big adjustment I noticed in, in that Game 2, where they absolutely killed the Hawks, was that Lopez... He still dropped. I mean, that's what he's best yeah. at, obviously. Exactly. But, but it wasn't as deep of a drop. It was more right. a high drop where it was essentially saying, okay, we're going to really contest these floaters. These are going to be difficult yes. floaters now. And, yes, we might surrender an occasional drive-by where Young is able to get around you. But Young isn't like – I mean, he's quick, but he's not the most explosive athlete getting to the rim and right. finishing. So. I think that was a was a smart call in trying to make those floaters a little bit more difficult, make him get all the way to the rim and finish, which is not one of his his strengths. But I, I completely agree with you about the frustration over Budenholzer. And the, the biggest thing for me is I just think Bryn Forbes should be playing more. They, they play him for, you know, these real short stints. And uh, I, I think in this series in particular, he should be playing every minute that Trey Young is not on the floor. And then also, you know, a few minutes outside of that as well. But the, the other thing, too, is it's, you know, they, they get into this habit of he's only playing for three or four minutes. So we're just going to draw up plays where he acts like he's J.J. Redick, where he's running off screens and taking these really difficult on the move threes. And <laughs> game three, though. Oof. Yeah, where where. The defense is focused in on Bryn Forbes and he's getting these really difficult shots and not able to convert. My thought is no, just use him as a floor spacer. Run your normal offense with Chris Middleton or Holiday and Giannis pick and roll. And then it's that much harder to help off if he's the floor spacer. We saw it in, in against Miami. I felt like it was a much more he killed um, Miami. Yes, a much more realistic role for Forbes where he is a floor spacer. And again, if teams are going to stop Giannis, they've got to get bodies in the paint. And that opens things up for Forbes for, for shots. Was weird. You bring in that Miami series and I started falling back in love with the Bucks in that series. I was like, wow. They just, I mean, because people were so scared. They, the heat crushed the Bucks in the bubble. It's a bad matchup for them. Then the Bucks. I mean, game one was really competitive, but after that, just waxed them. Yeah. And they were looking good on both ends. Fours, they had shooting. Giannis just, like, destroyed Jimmy Butler on the other end, just ate him up. Butler had nowhere to go. And it's like, wow, the Bucks have solved their demons. 
this is the best version of them. But then they just fall back into bad habits or are just a second too late making adjustments. And it's weird because on one end, this team could win the NBA Finals. That's a real possibility this year. But it's just also just like a hard-to-trust team. This These playoffs have been wild, and I know a lot of it's just been injuries. Like, I think if everyone healthy, like the Nets would have rolled, or when the Nets Clippers or Nets Lakers. I love that we're having new blood, though. I do think that's really good. And young stars emerging, I think, is always good, especially Trey Young. But it's, I mean, these are, I think, some of the most flawed Final Four I can remember. I'm glad you you brought that up, because that was going to be... That was going to be my next question for you is just kind of yeah. talking about the uh, the level of these conference finals. And I think, you know, to a casual fan, they, they might get it misconstrued that, oh, we're having these close games. They're really entertaining. They're back and forth. Um, you know, we get a game-winning alley-oop right, right near the buzzer. Yeah. I mean, there's been great games, finals. no question. It's just – Yeah, but – to me, it's like, you know, there's a difference between competitive basketball and high level basketball. And the, this is nowhere near, say, for instance, I think some of the best series we had was in that 2016 playoffs, the Thunder Spurs series, the Thunder uh, Warriors series, and of yeah. course, the Warriors Cavs finals. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, these conference finals are nowhere in, near that level. No, not at all. And I mean, again, it's injuries. I mean, so yeah, what can you kind of do? But it, I mean, it'll be interesting how people look at whoever wins this finals though. And I'm not a big asterisk. I'm like, if you win it, you win it because that's everyone's, I mean, injuries happen. That's no asterisk, but I do think there'll be some, this might be the worst NBA finals winning team since, I don't know, like the Oh six heat. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Like the whole, the whole asterisk term just seems kind of hot takey. Um, no you know, and, and right. I, you know, if you win the championship, I'm not like saying, Oh, in my mind, you didn't actually win sort of thing. The only, right. the only time I feel that I've felt that way is the, the 2002 championship. I still consider the Sacramento Kings, the NBA championship team that year, given the, the refereeing of that game six. Yeah. In the Western Conference. Right. Cause there, that was actual shady shit there. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, for the most part for, for 99.9% of the NBA champions. Yeah. If you win it, you win it. But at the same time, and as soon as I say but, people are going to be like, well, you're just saying it's an asterisk. Well, I just am saying not all championships are equal in the same yes. way that, like, I even look at this from an individual player perspective. Like what Dirk Nowitzki did in the 2011 playoffs, winning a championship without a second all-star on that team. What Hakeem Olajuwon did in 1994 winning a championship without a second all-star that means more than say, you know, Kevin Durant winning a championship with Steph clay and Draymond green, like that no in the same way it, it, you know, context matters for individuals like context matters for, for teams and championships. That's true. And, and the flip side of the coin, say the bucks win it, even though people may look at the bucks, like, Oh, the nets were hurt. Yada, yada. That is huge for Giannis's legacy, no question. Yeah. He's the best player on a championship team. 
Um, did Chris Mendelson make the All Star game this year? I guess he did, or I don't forget. I don't think he did actually. No, he I didn't. think I was very upset about so, that at the time. Right. Well, well, then he could say with as the only All Star. Yeah. And, <laughs> like that's so pretty impressive. Right. Um, even though, yeah, I thought Middleton should have easily made it over someone like Demontis Sabonis. Um, that's right. But uh, but yeah, I agree. It'll be huge, and and yeah, I still feel like the the NBA Finals. This this Hawks team, I don't think is is like an actual conference finals test, especially given their injuries. Now, if DeAndre Hunter and Bogdanovich were were fully healthy, I I might have even given the Hawks a chance to win the series. So would uh, I. I. I probably would have, at the very least would have picked it Milwaukee in six, but maybe even Milwaukee in seven or considered Atlanta winning it. Um, but uh, I think they're going to be tested in the, in the NBA finals, whether it's Phoenix getting through, or if the Clippers figure out a way to get past the Suns, that means that they have figured out something uh, quite well. And, and, and who knows, given the, the lack of information we've gotten on Kawhi Leonard, Maybe if they were to to make an NBA Finals, he he could return. Yeah, with him, I have no idea what's going on. So, yeah, <laughs> that's across the bridge when we get there. Who would you rather see, though? Assuming the Bucks, a Bucks Clippers or a Bucks Suns? I think Bucks Suns would be the better series. I, I think Giannis is a kryptonite <laughs> to the what the Clippers are trying to do with their small yeah. ball lineups. That would, that would present some problems. Now, if they had Kawhi, if they had Kawhi, but if they, they, they could, they could still go small against Milwaukee and be okay. But there's there's no one on the Clippers' uh, current small ball five that uh, that could deal with Giannis at all. That's that's just dunking people into a basket. Yeah, I, but I think the a Milwaukee Phoenix series would be fascinating from just a tactical, you know, X's and O's standpoint as well. Because again, you've got the the drop coverage of the Bucks, and you've seen how Trey Young has attacked it and given them issues. It would, you know, obviously Booker and Paul are pretty good in the mid range, and 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 would be would be an interesting uh, duo to sort of attack that defense. And then on the other end, you know, the the Suns have some guys they have a guy in Jay Crowder who was maybe a, a key reason why the Heat couldn't deal with Milwaukee this year when they were able to beat them last season. Uh, and then, you know, DeAndre Ayton, I think, would even be a guy that they could throw on Giannis and, and do a reasonable job. And they, they've they added they, – they, of course, added Torrey Craig around the trade deadline, who's another big wing that could, could maybe just, you know, if you need a guy to – foul Giannis a few times he certainly could do that that's that's the thing that, that to me would be the most fascinating series but uh you know I think so too I don't watch, even know watching this so far I, I I do wonder like you know maybe these next couple of games in the in the Western Conference is going to be in the Western Conference Finals is going to be maybe the the best quality basketball we might get I mean it definitely could be I could see that I mean, it's still, I don't want to say it's been bad. It's just, you're right. It's not, we've seen usually at this point in the conference finals, it just, there's, it's just a little bit higher level basketball because there's usually more superstars playing. Well, but you, 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 entertaining. You're, you're hoping, you're hoping with these games as well in the playoffs. Okay. I want to see a game where both teams play well on both ends and you, you yes. get, 
you get that. Whereas it, it really hasn't felt like that's been the case really at all. I feel like with, with Phoenix LA, it's been, the game's been either really offensive or really defensive. That Milwaukee Brooklyn series was pretty much exclusively defensive. Oh um, my God, that some of the Brooklyn Milwaukee games were just grinded out and just brutal. I mean, in Brooklyn got to, I mean, it was just Kevin Durant who maybe had the best series ever for a person who didn't win the series. Yeah. Well, besides some, maybe like other LeBron series, he was just incredible, but man, that was, that was a grind. That felt a little, that felt a little old schooly to me. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And you, uh, you hope that, at some point we'll we'll get some matchups where both teams play well whereas to this point it's felt more like these playoffs I'm going to remember them more for the individual performances than the specific yeah. teams you know of course you had Luka in round 1 you had Damian Lillard with the 55 point game against oh, Denver yeah. uh you know of course you had the the Paul George a couple of performances Donovan Mitchell had a few great games so yeah it it feels much more, and of course, Kevin Durant, which you mentioned, who put on yeah. some of the greatest performances we've ever seen in the playoffs. Yeah. Um, but uh, un- unless we, unless the level of, of play picks up here, I feel like that's going to be my main takeaway from all of this is just some of these individual performances that we got. Same. Although I will be happy that a team, whoever wins it, will be a team that hasn't won it either ever or like since 1970 or something. I forget exactly. Yeah, definitely. I believe since the merger, none of the teams have, have won it. I do like that a lot. Cause yeah. I mean, most of my lifetime has either been Lakers, Spurs, Warriors. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, all of these teams have had, um, I guess, and not so much the the Clippers, but all these teams have had some some great teams in the past. You know, you look at the Suns teams with, yeah. with Charles Barkley, and and then later on with Steve Nash and Amari Stoudemire. Uh, you've got the the Milwaukee Bucks, all those teams with with Sidney Moncrief in the '80s that were, were were excellent for a long time, and then the the 2001 team with Ray Allen, Sam Cassell, and Glenn Robinson was That's a really right. fun team. Uh, and then, of course, Atlanta with Dominique Wilkins in the 80s. And they had the, I mean, less so these team, these teams. Uh, well, I mean, the the Al Horford. They did have a 60-win year. Yep, won 60 <laughs> games in, in, what was that, 2015, I believe? Yeah, I think uh, so. So, yeah, all of these teams. The, the Clippers, not so much. I guess they did have that, uh, they had that Elton Brand-led team in, in 2006. That's right. <laughs> But uh, and of course they had the they had the Chris Paul Blake Griffin teams that were good uh, more recently. But uh, yeah, all these teams have had some some great groups in the past, but just have never been able to get over the hump. For sure, and I love that. Like it's, I thought it was really cool when the Raptors won a couple years ago. Just yep. to see. I think that that's just that's always a good thing to just have some new blood because so long. I mean, people complained about parity and the season would start and we, we would know the finals, right? I mean, yeah. just warriors. That's what's going to happen. Yeah. And, and people, it's, it's funny. They, they just always find something to complain about. If it's, if there's uh if, yeah, if, if, as you said, it's, it's warriors Cavs before the season starts, it's, there's a lack of parody. And then when there is parody, it's like, well, you know, 
what are the ratings going to look like with uh, with no LeBron or Steph Curry? And then recently I saw that the ratings this year for the playoffs are up like 39%, I think in part because, yeah, people are excited to see, you know, the, the casual yeah. fan probably doesn't know who, didn't know who Trey Young was maybe before these playoffs. And now I've gotten mm-hmm. to see him. I think some some fresh blood is uh, is good for the the Fresh blood is definitely your experience. I'm pro parity for sure. Obviously, yeah. injuries suck. But even if there were some less injuries, like I think this would have been a playoffs full of parity too. Like, imagine if Jamal Murray didn't get hurt for the Nuggets, they could have made a run, right? Yeah. And you would just go on and on. Like there were, I don't know, five, six teams that at least had a chance to make the finals. That's that's rare. It's usually two to like three. Yeah. It's, I mean, the, the injuries have just been such a, yeah. I mean, the, the Murray thing from the get go, it's like, oh, I was so excited to watch the Nuggets in the post. I, I was going to pick them too. How they would follow up the conference finals appearance in the bubble. And then, you know, basically, I mean, yeah, they, they won a series, but it, again, I didn't think that was played at a super high level. Um, yeah. Against that game five was wild, though. Yeah, uh, and then you know the they just got absolutely destroyed by the Suns without Murray, and then yeah, the the Suns Lakers series. I was like, this is probably the series I'm most excited for. Then immediately Chris Paul hurts his shoulder, and then in game four Anthony Davis gets hurt, and it's very quickly like, well, we didn't even get one full game <laughs> where both of these teams were healthy. I know. I was so excited for that series too, and. Right, probably if AD stayed healthy. They, I mean, they were up two one and up big in Game Four, and then AD got hurt and just the wheels fell off for that team. But yeah, probably them too. So fun off season question for you: Is Dame yeah. Lillard a Portland Trailblazer next year? Ooh. Yeah, yeah. I mean. They they hired one of the two guys that he said he wanted, right? In in Chauncey Billups, despite obvious backlash for given Billups' uh, history with sexual assault. I'll be honest, I did not know he had that. Did not yeah. know. Well, and, and I think but that's that was, obviously not great. That was, I think, a lot of the people's response to Lillard as well as like well, he he basically said, "Well, I I didn't uh, read the news when I was seven or eight years old." But I, know. Uh, I don't get why he got so much shit for that. <laughs> well, but everyone responded and said, okay, that's fine. But you, you know, the information now, what are you going to do about it now? Right. And that's fair. Yeah. I don't know. Like that or they're in such a tough spot because they, they, they hired him, signed him to a deal four years, 80 mil, whatever. Yeah. So you kind of have to stick with it at that point and make some PR spin that, you know, whatever. There were no charge. It got settled. He's learned all that stuff. Then can you damage control with Dame while at the same time convincing him that this is a championship contender, which they aren't? Right. Yeah, that's the that's the thing to me is. And, and to answer your question, I don't think Dame Lillard gets traded this year. I think it's more likely that a guy like CJ McCollum is traded this off season mm. for one yeah. easier to match salary on CJ McCollum's contract. But then, you know, also I think they, um, given what Lillard has done for that community, I don't think they're going to cut bait this soon, especially if he hasn't done some sort of formal trade request 
But if things go poorly, even this offseason or early next year, I would not be shocked if Lillard is very quickly saying, you know, and there's been rumors that he he wants to win big now. Um, yeah, and, I mean, he's 31, 30. I think that's right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I would not be surprised if he's maybe traded at next year's deadline if he requests a trade or the following year. But I would be real. I would be surprised if it's this offseason. I think they Neil O'Shea and the Blazers would first look to uh, trade McCollum and see if they can put a different sort of roster construction around him and see if he's content with the new coach and the new situation before they completely abandon ship. I think that'd be my move too. I mean, obviously he's such a, you know, just like a pillar there. Trade CJ, try to get as much defense around Dame as you can with some scoring. It's just such a bummer. Zach Collins has always hurt for them. I always thought he would have been a good big to play with Lillard with protection, but he just never available. Yeah. Well, and the, um, the, the trade that I think a lot of people have brought up given the struggles of Ben Simmons in Philadelphia was the Simmons McCollum swap. What are, what are your thoughts on, on that possible maneuver? From the Portland side, if you do that trade, do you keep Nurkic too? And what do you do exactly with Simmons? Like how do you play him? Right. If they move Nurkic as well, I think I may like, and depending what they get back, of course, I may actually kind of like it. <laughs> yeah. McCollum, I think, helps Philly a bit, but doesn't solve all their problems. Like, he can get his bucket, but he's not hes not going to create a ton for others. Yeah. So, if I was Philly... I'm sending the house for Lillard. I'm going Simmons, Thibel, Maxi, two, three first. Let's go for it. Yeah, yeah, that'd be that'd be a real interesting one. And yeah, imagine uh, imagine a Lillard and Bead pick and roll. That would be devastating. No uh, question. <laughs> but um, yeah, the uh, the Portland side of it. Yeah, I I would not like it as the Blazers, as you said. You know. Yeah, you've, you've got Nurkic there. So, yeah, do you play Simmons and Nurkic together? Isn't that just the same issue that Philadelphia has? They, they have Damian Lillard, but, uh, you know, if, if Simmons is the screener, are you spotting up, are you spacing Nurkic to the corner? Uh, that's not ideal. Um, if, you're, yeah. if you're screening with Nurkic, then Simmons is clogging up things for Nurkic on the roll. And Nurkic struggles enough to finishing around the rim, especially if there's another guy there. So that that's the big issue for me. And, and for all of the, the Ben Simmons defenders, the, the thing I, they always bring up the idea that, Oh, he's, you know, he could kind of be in the Draymond green role on offense. And like, in theory, yes, that makes, that makes perfect sense. But frankly, Draymond green is only effective offensively as the five. He's not an effective offensive player as a power forward. And you saw that in 2016 where the Thunder and the Cavs were able to put Durant at the four, LeBron at the four, and switch the Curry-Draymond pick and roll. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until the Warriors took their center off the court and made someone like Steven Adams or Tristan Thompson be the guy defending that pick and roll where they got something good out of it. Um, 
The issue with Simmons is you can't play him at center because he's not a rim protector. He's not uh, he's not uh, some guy that's got great strength or some great wingspan like Draymond Green to defend on the post against actual bigs either. So that's that's the biggest issue is, you know, you can't just say, oh, well, he could do this on offense, but it it works. You have to you have to figure in both sides of the floor with Ben Simmons. And if one thing's working on one end, it doesn't work on the other. It's uh, you almost need. I mean, it kind of was and be like a five who can stretch the floor and also protect the rim. Yeah. Like, I mean, that that's what I keep saying is. People, but that's hard to find. <laughs> he, people claim that the Sixers fit is just terrible for Simmons. Where I say he might be one of the better ones. Yeah, they yeah. put they put four shooters around him, and they've got a center that can shoot and be a terrific interior defender. There's there's not a lot of better options than that for him. No, that's I was trying to think of fake Simmons trades looking for that, and the only one. I consider Charlotte giving a flyer on him because he can just catch lobs and run with LaMelo and the passing would be fun. But some of those same issues would come up as well because we don't, we don't have a rim protector. Yeah. I thought of Indiana and if he could play with Miles Turner and they send like Brogdon to Philly plus like, I don't know, Warren or something, Sabonis. That's the only one I was like, maybe... And they put like enough shooting around him too, like I don't know, Levert, Holiday, all those people. That was the one that like kind of intrigued me. Yeah, but like as soon as you tell me, okay, in my mind, like yeah, Simmons Simmons is a is a good basketball player. He's a good starting wing. But as soon as you're trading both like Brogdon and TJ Warren, who are also both good starting caliber players. It's no, like, are, are the Pacers actually better if they trade Brogdon, Warren, and some other stuff? Like, uh, right. I don't but know if they Sabonis are. Now, and the other issue is like, yeah, they've they've had this thing where Sabonis and Turner aren't the greatest fit, but like, why would Philadelphia want Sabonis? Right. That was that was the thing that flummoxed me. I was like, they would probably rather want Warren after the injury, and maybe. Indiana could trade Sabonis somewhere else. And then my other thought is maybe Simmons should just go to a bad team and rediscover himself. Yeah. What if Orlando sent Terrence Ross's contract, Gary Harris, and the fifth overall pick in eighth? And Ben Simmons could just go to Orlando. The fifth and eighth? I mean, I'm I'm taking that immediately. (laughs) Well, I mean – I guess the issue would be both. It would be one of them. I mean, if the the issue that the Daryl Morey has is not only are you trying to get as much value as possible, but it needs to be present value because they're trying to win. But just from a value standpoint, if I got offered the fifth and eighth pick for Simmons, I would do that in a heartbeat. I would too. And you could even reflip those picks if you wanted for more of a win now move. Yeah. Right. And then Orlando, he could just go play with a bunch of other young guys, the pre- just like they did with Fultz. The pressure's off. Rediscover yourself. That might be your best-case scenario. Yeah. Gain some confidence. Play it through your lumps. But uh, it was tougher. When I was looking through trades, I was like, 
because a he makes thirty million, and b like these they're hard to find ones that truly make sense. <laughs> right. Yeah. The um, I've heard people mention something like you know Minnesota because you've got Carl Anthony Towns who right is, you know an ideal offensive fit with Ben Simmons because okay. you can utilize his floor spacing, his perimeter skill when Simmons is on the floor and you could even stagger them. If you want to give town some minutes where he can be your post-up hub, mm. but uh, you know, also it's like, if you've got a lineup with, with towns and Russell and Simmons is your only good defensive player, you're probably not good enough defensively even still, even though that would make them better. Uh, What's that trait? They're probably sending Malik Beasley I would guess. Something like that, and, uh, you know. I wonder if D'Lo would be part of that deal, actually. Probably would have to be to make the salary. salary yeah. Um, which, yeah, I, I, I'm not a fan of D'Lo either. I don't think that really solves Philadelphia's yeah, issues. Actually, I'm thinking, if I'm both teams, I'm thinking I'm staying away from that. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, it's it it very quickly, there's, there's not too many teams to think about because, yeah, you need a center that can shoot and, and play some defense. And you need a team-wide collection of shooting, but you also need a couple of a, a team that has the depth of talent that can give something of use for a win-now move for for the Sixers. It's just it's tough to well, figure out. And I also I've mentioned this on Twitter as well is you not only have to factor in that like Simmons is really tough to to build around, but he's yeah, not a good enough player to build around you build around guys in the NBA. You don't build around a guy who I think is like a top 40 player in the NBA. Right. Uh, And, and especially a top 40 player that's making the money of a guy who is a a max player. So he's, he's overpaid. So you've got to figure that in. So you can, you can only, you know, have so many stars around him fitting under a salary cap. So yeah, it's, it's a, it's a tough situation, and I, and I consistently am, am perplexed by this idea that, like, Simmons is just going to find some uh, – or there is some, you know, magical situation for Ben Simmons where he would look a lot better than he has the last couple of years. I just don't see it. I don't see it all coming together, magic situation. I could see a fresh start giving him a boost for sure, and he's just, like, a little better and just less in his head. That's totally plausible, but – you're right. The stars aligning and he becomes like a top 15 dude. Don't, don't see it. Well, and the, the lack of the lack of improvement in his game is also a big, big time concern because I've been thinking for a while that it's not just the lack of shooting. It's the lack of a post game. It's the lack of a great finishing touch. He doesn't have a floater in his arsenal. You know, he's got to be able to, if, if he can't shoot the jumper, he's got to be like a, like a Giannis around the rim where he can score in a variety of ways, but he doesn't have the superior strength to just bully anybody. And he doesn't have the skill set around the basket either to be an effective score. So, yeah. I'm um, actually wondering that because if, at this point, the shooting and the skills never come, is his best chance just to get ripped? And just super strong, like Giannis, and just bully people around. Like that, honestly, maybe his best move. Yeah, yeah, just building up a bunch of strength and developing a post game, and 
and yeah, getting, getting better at the, the finishing elements and, and yeah, maybe with a, some additional strength, he could hold up better as a, as Henry, a yeah. five defensively as well. Uh, I still question, you know, your, your team's rim protection, if he's your, your center, but um, maybe you could get somebody like a Robert Covington who can provide some weak side rim protection around him to give you just enough. But yeah, it's a, it's a tough fit. And again, building around a guy that's top 40 is just not a top 40 player is just not really a feasible thing to do as a franchise. Can I float one more trade for my Charlotte Hornets? Sure. Gordon Hayward, Devonte Graham and the 11th overall pick thoughts for either team. Wait, so sorry. I, I might've missed this part. Yeah. You said, you said Gordon Hayward, Devonte Graham and the, and 11th, the 11th, the 11th overall pick. For Ben Simmons? For Ben Simmons. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, interesting. So, yeah, it gives the Sixers, I mean, Devontae Graham, not ideal, but he is a guy that's capable of some off-the-dribble shooting for them that could maybe open up things for Embiid on the roll. Good passer. Yeah. Hayward is a solid offense. I mean, that's 20 a game with Hayward if he's healthy. Yeah. And bet, betting on Hayward's health is a big concern. <laughs> it's a big concern. That's why it's you think about it. Yeah. Um, but I think that type of player would really help the Sixers. Yeah, I I like it. So yeah, the I'm trying to think of the starting lineup for the Sixers would what would be would it be um uh you'd start Curry and uh Graham in the backcourt with I guess Hayward, Tobias and Tobias and Embiid. That's interesting. Um, you could trade some defense with offense too, with like Danny Green and Thibel on the bench. Right. Yeah, they, I forgot they they still have Danny Green. But yeah, that's that's an interesting one. Yeah, I, I just I would be scared to death at this point with Hayward's health situation. He's just not been able to stay on the floor at the crucial moments for I know. a long time at this point, and. Uh, so yeah, I, I feel like he's officially injury prone, <laughs> Gordon Hayward. I think he is. It's a shame. He had such a great start to the season. He suckered me back in. Yeah. Um, but then, the, like, of course. for, for Charlotte, from Charlotte's perspective. So then what would Charlotte's starting lineup be? It would be uh Lamello. Would it, it still would be uh you probably have with Rozier, Rozier, Lamello, Rozier, PJ Washington, Simmons. And then we have some options. Maybe Miles Bridges. We we'd have to re-sign Monk off the bench. Maybe Jalen McDaniels. So that you'd have you'd commit the the Charlotte Hornets committing to the the small ball. Oh. We would have to commit a, a small ball and sign some average center free agency. Uh, a Daniel Tice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You that, wonder. You wonder with nice uh, eight seed sounding to it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> offensively offensively it works yeah. i think it's enough shooting around simmons right yeah but but yeah defensively it's still like uh, i i don't trust pj washington as a center or ben simmons as a center no. uh, and you know you're still you know the backcourt i think is okay defensively but it's nothing sensational you don't have any guys that are just like standout lockdown guys either which you would hope if you if you don't have elite rib protection that's what you're kind of hoping for is you have guys that can just 
prevent that dribble penetration. And I don't think they necessarily would have that. Yeah. I mean, Simmons would be by far our best defender in the group. Yeah. Washington and Bridges are okay at best. Lamelo is bad. Rosier is bad. Yeah. So it would be a hell of a league pass team, though, in the open court. Ooh. <laughs> Some oops to Bridges. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's, that's the other thing, getting back to the whole, like, Ben Simmons and Philadelphia yeah. somehow not being a good fit, which I couldn't disagree with more, is mm-hmm. Simmons' greatest strength is a transition play, as, is as a transition player offensively. For so sure. what creates transition opportunities? Being an elite defensive team. The Sixers are an elite defensive team that creates all of these opportunities to run. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the other thing is, yeah, you can maybe find this great situation where Simmons is actually like manageable in a half court setting. But then like, if you're not good enough defensively, you're also taking a big chunk of what makes him special away from him. It's really a conundrum. Yeah. Well, Evan, uh, this was this was a lot of fun going down the Ben Simmons rabbit hole. I wasn't expecting that, but it was a blast. Uh, thanks so much for, for coming on and, and taking the time. Of course. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to Duncan Dynasty. Please, if you can, if you have a moment, go to iTunes and uh, give us a rating and review, preferably five stars. And uh, if you could give any thoughts about what you like about the show, that would be much appreciated. We are also on Spotify, so uh, you can give us a rating on there as well. If you'd like to find some other content outside of this podcast, you can find me on Twitter, at Garrett Bougay. That's G-A-R-R-E-T-T-B-U-G-A-Y. I will be uh, tweeting various uh, NBA thoughts as well as some, some thoughts on some other uh, interests of mine, including soccer and film and television. So uh, if you're looking for some of my takes throughout the, the course of the week, you can find me there. You can find my co-host Corbin Ford on Twitter at CorbinNBA. That's C-O-R-B-A-N-N-B-A. So uh, he, uh, he does, a, d- does a good job on Twitter as well. He's very active. I'm also doing uh, some work as a contributor for Rip City Project, which uh, does all things Blazers. So if you're looking for some written content, you can check those websites out. Corbin also does his own pod on the side called NBA Today. Uh, he, uh, he does some, some fun work over there, so, so please, I encourage you to check that out. But uh, thanks so much again for, for listening, and have a great rest of your day.